Amen. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, here we are to worship. That's what we gather here this morning to do. To worship you, O God, who is worthy of all praise, is worthy of all honor, who is worthy of our worship. Father, we have done so in song, we have done so in prayer, or it is our desire now to come to you and worship you, Father, as we listen and heed your word. Father, we thank you that you are gracious to us and that you feed us through your word, that you challenge us and you convict us through your word, Lord. We pray for your help now to understand what it is you would have us to learn, Lord. Father, our prayer is that you would show us Christ this morning. That we would see him high and exalted, lifted up, seated at your right hand. That we would see him in all of his glory, Lord. And that it would cause us to fall down in worship and praise and adoration that we would be that we would see him and we'd be willing to give our lives fully and completely to him this morning all of our hearts father show us christ this morning show us your love show us your mercy and your grace help us lord it's in jesus precious name we pray amen If you haven't realized, I'm sure you soon will realize that Jesus is controversial. He is controversial. He always has been and always will be. During this year's Holy Week, the the week leading up to Easter, Newsweek magazine had a cover, controversial cover, as they depicted a picture of what they thought Jesus to look like. And they dressed him as a hipster, wearing modern clothes in the middle of Times Square. The premise of the article was to push this worldly agenda that the church needs to move away from organized religion and and. And focus more so on Jesus and just following Jesus. This article caused quite a stir. It was very controversial. Newsweek really didn't, they were honest. They didn't really care about what you thought about the article. They really just wanted to sell magazines, make money. Seems that every year, right around Easter or Christmas, Magazines, newspaper articles, uh, news shows, they, they do stories about Jesus because they know that Jesus is controversial. 
And where there is controversy, they know money and people and ratings and all of the such will follow. This is nothing new. Jesus always stirs up controversy. And has been doing so since the start of his earthly ministry. He is polarizing. He's polarizing. The reason he is polarizing is because there is no waffling with Jesus. I mean, there's no balance, no compromise. Jesus delivers the truth straight. You either accept it or you reject it. When he began walking the roads in Jerusalem and in Galilee and the surrounding areas, Jesus' encounters with the, with the scribes and the, the Pharisees and the, the chief priests and the Sadducees, they were always confrontational. There was always controversy, conflicts around what they would consider something as, as Jesus uh, 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 made a claim about himself or he performed a miracle. They would think it would be controversial and it would, it would cause conflict and, and tensions. And the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they would seek to challenge Jesus on it. They would want to know where his authority came from. They would want to know how he had the right, who gave him to write, the right to make all of these claims that he was making about himself. It should be no surprise to us that Jesus is, is controversial and that he was controversial then and is controversial to this day. You see, truth in a sinful world is always controversial. Truth always confronts impure motives. It, ex- it exposes false interpretations. And it swims in the opposite direction of the cultural norm. Jesus is truth. Jesus is truth, and so he is confrontational. He says it himself in in John 14 and 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When Jesus speaks, when he opens up his mouth, he is proclaiming truth. And it's no different today. We have the word of God, the very word of God. And so the Bible that you are holding in your hand is truth. And that truth is controversial in a sinful world. It counters the norm. Well, here's what, here's what I'd like to do this morning. Here's what I, I'd like to accomplish this morning. I want to bring your attention to three controversial truths that I believe Jesus addresses in this text. In answering the scribes' questions, Jesus will help to clarify for us some important truths and some truths that are hard for us to swallow because that's what I mean when I say that Jesus is controversial. It's, it's controversial, seemingly controversial to us, but no less it is truth. But there is controversy surrounding it. But let's get some, let's get some context before we seek to draw on those truths this, this morning. It's been a couple of weeks since we have been in Mark, so it might be helpful to, to kind of look at where we are in our account. Remember, this is, this is Passion Week. Wednesday, Jesus on Friday will be hanging on a cross. 
Right? He's been in the temple and he has disrupted the, 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 the money changers and, and he's called out the, the Sanhedrin on their corrupt and, and selfish and, and self-seeking leadership. And so the, the tension is heightened and the, the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, they, they're unhappy. They're not happy with Jesus. He is, he is messing with their lead, he's messing with their leadership. He's messing with their, their economic um, uh, um, success. And so they are seeking every way possible to seek to kill Jesus, to put him to death. They're unhappy. They are seeking to trap Jesus. And so... We see here that Jesus now is facing this full brunt attack from the Sanhedrin. First, the, uh, the, the Pharisees and the Herodians come and they, they begin to challenge Jesus and question him. And then, and then the, the Sadducees come dispensing their attack. But one by one, he responds to each challenge. Jesus, Jesus masterfully he masterfully demonstrates his, his authority, displaying for all who were there that he was without sin. That what he was saying was true, that he was not a liar. That he was about his father's business and nothing or no one was going to thwart the plans that had been set forth before the foundation of the world. Jesus was going to the cross. Well, one of the scribes has been witnessing these encounters that Jesus has just had with, with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians. And he decides that he is going to come up to Jesus, whether out of intrigue or, or because um, he, he just wants his shot at the rabbi, he approaches Jesus with a question. Now, the scribes were those who were skilled in the knowledge of the law. They knew the law extremely well. They could interpret it, right? The, the law meaning the Old Testament. They, they would rehearse it. They were well-skilled and well-versed in the law. It was an expertise. There was no Jew who knew more about the law than the scribes. And so it's natural that, 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 that his question would have to do with the law. So he asked Jesus a common question that would have been asked many rabbis, what, which commandment is most important of all? Now, some of the other gospel writers view this question as a, as a challenge to Jesus. But Mark here seems to paint the scribe in a, in a more uh, favorable picture. That, that perhaps he is he's just intrigued. He's, he's kind of impressed with Jesus. And he's, he's almost sincere in his request, in his questioning of Jesus. Whatever the case, there is one thing that is clear. This scribe has no idea who he is standing before. He has no idea that he is the very one who made the law. 
Then he's God himself right there who is, who's, who's going to judge those who break his law. But Jesus, as always, being patient, being merciful, and always having an agenda, answers the man's question. And he says, and he says this. Well, I'll tell you what the most, what the most important commandment is, what the greatest commandment is. He says, hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Jesus answers with the Shema. The Shema, a very common and and perhaps the most familiar, it actually is the most familiar creed of the Jewish religion. Every Jew knew the Shema. We first see the Shema introduced to us in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5, where Moses is reciting to the people the statutes and the rules that the Lord commanded him to tell the people of Israel. So the scribe is impressed with with Jesus' answers. And And he says, you have answered correctly, Jesus. Which brings me to the first controversial truth that Jesus addresses with his answer to this scribe. And that is, Jesus was religious. In fact, Jesus loved religion. Now, this is a controversial truth. This is, this is hard for us to, to swallow because often what people like to do is separate Jesus from religion. Just recently, Jeff, Jefferson Bethke made uh, national headlines as a viral video um, took off on the internet, right? He, 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 he took a video of a, of a spoken word poem that he wrote and he put it on the internet. And this poem was called, um, um, Why I Hate Religion But Love Jesus, right? And it went viral because it just garnered a whole bunch of hits on YouTube. In fact, just this weekend when I, when I checked it, it is up to over 20 million hits. Controversial. The content of the poem that dealt with, with the fact that Jesus... Basically, what, what Jefferson was saying was that Jesus hates religion. And he, was, and he was putting them on complete opposite ends of the spectrum. Is this, is this true? Does Jesus hate religion? Not according to the Bible. 
not according to the Bible. Now, in all fairness to Jefferson Bethke, um, he has done a series of interviews after. He's, he's put up some blog posts, and, and he explained kind of where he was coming from. And I think he would agree with what we are saying here this morning. But no, we should never separate Jesus from religion. In fact, Jesus did love religion. Jesus was very religious, but I don't think we like to think in terms of that because we, def- we fail to define what we mean when we say religious. But Jesus, in the in answer to the scribe, reminds us that he was indeed religious. He answers the way the scribe would have him to answer. He answers with the most recognizable Jewish creed that there was, the Shema. Which you, would be he- which you would hear being recited in, t- in the temple multiple times a day, morning and evening. They would have been reciting this Shema, this creed. Jesus was a Jew, and he kept up the regulations, traditions, and commandments set forth in the law. That is what religion is. That is what religion is. It is keeping rules, regulations, commandments, and tradition. And based on those, keeping up those things, keeping up those items, those rules and those regulations and those commandments, there are blessings and there are curses associated with those things. You may say, well, that's not Christianity. And my answer to that is, well, you're wrong. That is Christianity. Christianity is a religion made up of of rituals, the Lord's Supper, the preaching of the word, baptisms. It does comprise of rules and commandments, do's and don'ts. Honor your parents. Do not murder, do not steal. Do's and don'ts with blessings and curses attached. Now, if this is news to you, brothers and sisters, I I admonish you to read your Bibles because when you read your Bibles, you see this all throughout. There are commands that we are to follow and to do. And there are blessings and there are curses associated with following those commands and those rules. Brothers and sisters, Christianity is is a religion and, in, and to not follow the rules and the regulations set forth in, that, in this religion perfectly means you don't get into heaven. It means you don't get into heaven. Brothers and sisters, that's what Jesus says. I'm not making this up. This is what Jesus says. He says it in Matthew 5 and 20. He says this. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. No one is getting into heaven without religion. No one is getting into heaven without religion. That is bad news for those who are outside of Christ. But for those who are in Christ... Knowing that he, Jesus Christ, love religion is comfort. It is our comfort. For we see that Jesus, that Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly. All the rituals, all the commands, he fulfilled perfectly. 
so that now when we, when we quote that familiar verse, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God, we know what that verse means. We know that Jesus' perfect religion became our perfect religion. Brothers and sisters, we should rejoice. We should rejoice when we hear that Jesus was religious. In fact, when you, when you rightly understand that, you should be glad that Jesus didn't hate religion. You should be glad that he didn't hate religion. And therefore, neither should you. We should not ever be separating religion from Christ. Jesus was indeed religious. But Jesus' answer does not just reveal that he loved religion. The message of the Shema, the, the command found in the message of the Shema, reveals for us our second controversial truth. Namely, that God is a jealous God. God is a jealous God. Many of you are familiar with Oprah Winfrey. And she says and and tells the story of being in church one Sunday morning and hearing this truth expounded that God is a jealous God. And it was the reason, it was the catalyst that she says caused her to leave the church and never go back. Unbelievers have a problem with this statement and this truth, but believers do as well. Because we tend to think of jealousy in negative terms. But it is often because we confuse jealousy with envy. But even more so, we don't contemplate jealousy as it relates to God's character. And to his attributes. We forget what God is all consumed with. What is he consumed with? He is consumed with his glory. He is consumed with his fame. With his honor. He is consumed with his worship. The contents of the Shema can be summed up in the truth that God is jealous for his glory. He's jealous for his honor and his praise. Let's look at what it says. Let's look at the Shema. It starts off by saying that the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Meaning that despite the man-made gods that are formed and fashioned by our hands, despite what we think about the idols of our heart, the gods that are a figment of our imagination, there is only one true God. Only one. He is the God who is one in essence, three in persons, the triune God. He is creator of all, sustainer of all. He was before there was. Knows no beginning and knows no ends. He set the stars in the heavens and placed the fish at the depths of the sea. Get this. He 
knows how the number of hairs on the head of everyone who walks the face of the earth has walked the face of the earth and will ever walk the face of the earth. He made light appear and shine in darkness. He stopped the sun. He made the sun stand still. He is loving, merciful, kind, and terrible all at the same time. And you know what? He is your Lord, whether you want to submit to him or not. The Lord, our God, is one. And because this is the case, because he being God, almighty, sovereign over all, he has the right to demand and he is worthy of your complete, your total, your unwavering, perfect devotion. Brothers and sisters, what God tells Moses to tell the people of Israel. And he doesn't just, this is not just for the people of Israel. This is for us. This is for everyone that God has created. It's not a suggestion. This is a command. God is commanding everyone in general, but particular his people, that you are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. Everything. Everything. Did you say, did you say, how does one do that? How do you do that? Is that, is that even possible? How is that accomplished? Let's go to the word and see what it says. Well, we are to, as it says in Exodus 20 and 3, right? The first commandment, you're to have no other gods before him. Nothing. No other gods before God. You are to count everything as lost for the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ, as it says in Philippians 3 and 8. Count it all as lost. Fame, fortune, Count it all as lost, loss. You are, as Romans 12, 2 says, to present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. You are to lay down your life for the brothers because we know that's how we love, as it says in 1 John 3 and 16. Also in 1 John, it says that we are not to be lovers of this world or the things in this world. Or else the love of God is not in you. Brothers and sisters, this command is to love God with every fiber of our being, full devotion to him. This means, this means every waking, sleeping, second, minute, hour of every single day, 24, seven, 365. God commands this type of love and commitment and devotion to him. And he is right to command it because he is jealous for his glory and he will not share it with anyone or anything. 
God is a jealous God. You're saying, you might say, well, who was able to do that? Who was able to do that? Well, my, my question to you would be, well, does it matter? God commanded you to do it. So you do it. You try with all of your fiber, all of your being, you try to do this because God has commanded it. You should be seeking to live your lives in light of this truth. At every moment, loving God with everything. With everything. And brothers and sisters, we've seen glimpses of this. We've seen glimpses of people seeking and striving to to live their lives in light of this command. Those who are willing to forsake fame, fortune, worldly success because they love God. If, I mean, if we were to take a look at church history, if we would open up our eyes and get out of our glass enclosed boxes and and rose petal filled beds, we would see that there are indeed people seeking to do this. They're seeking to live their lives in light of this command. You know, some of the first missionaries, right? They would leave home and everything to go to an unreached people group, places that they had never been before. This is before planes. This is before cars. You had to get places by boat, months and months on a boat. You know what they packed their clothes in, their things in? They They didn't put them in suitcases, Louis Vuitton bags. They put them in coffins. They put them in coffins. Why? Because they knew that once they left, they weren't coming back. They were going to die on the mission field. Why? Why would they do that? Because, because they have been so gripped by the love of God for them. Brothers and sisters, the only reason you are able to love God is because he loved you first. It is a love so grand. It is a love so amazing. It is a love so divine, as the songwriter says, demands my soul, my life, my all. This is the love. God demands everything. But the controversy comes in. Well, if God demands everything, what about everyone else around us? If God demands all, how are the people around us affected? Does that mean that we just ignore them? Here's the amazing thing. Here is the amazing thing about God's jealousy. God's jealousy benefits those around us. It's good for our neighbor. It's good for our neighbor. Notice what what Jesus does in reciting the greatest commandment. He adds to it a second commandment. And he says this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
Now, this commandment that Jesus adds is not found in Deuteronomy 6 where we find the Shema. This, is, this, this um, verse, this commandment is found in Leviticus 19 and 18. But Jesus adds it here and he says there is no other commandment greater than these. Jesus knows that God's desire for your full love and devotion will lead you to loving and treating your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because you begin to see your neighbor the way God sees them. With compassion. With mercy. With care. You see them as being created in the image of God. Here's what Sinclair Ferguson says in, 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 in commenting on this passage. He says, we have a special motive for caring for others. As members of the kingdom of God, we know something about people they may not even know about themselves. They were made to reflect God's image and glory. Even when that image has been distorted in their lives, we love them because we see what they were meant to be and are moved with compassion. Brothers and sisters, God being jealous for his glory, that we would love him with every fiber of our beings, with our minds and all of our hearts and all of our souls and all of our strength benefits our neighbors. So what does this mean? How does this, how does this work out practically? Well, if this is the case, if we are to love God with everything, if we are to love God with all of our strength, all of our mind, all of our soul, how does this benefit my spouse? You want to be a better spouse? What do you do? You don't love yourself more. You don't love them more. You love God more. Because you loving God benefits them is going to cause you to love them more. So you want to be a better friend. You love God more. You want to be a better coworker, love God more. A better parent, love God more. You want to know what it is and how to love your enemy, you love God more. Because the, the commandments are tied together. You don't love others unless you first love God. Because God has first loved you. If you want to be a better Christian, you strive with everything in your being to love God more. Jesus is not finished with this, with this scribe. He has to tie it all together. Remember, he's always got an agenda. He has got to tie it all together. Perhaps the scribe now, after Jesus has answered with the Shema, the scribe has said, yes, Jesus, you have answered rightly. Perhaps he's feeling good about himself, right? The, Jesus didn't rebuke him like he, he did 
the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In fact, this rabbi who had marveled the others agreed with, or agreed with the scribe. But Jesus makes one last statement that, uh, that must have baffled, must have baffled the scribe. He makes one last statement and gives us our last controversial truth. Here's what Jesus says. You are not far from the kingdom of God. Jesus says, yeah, he's, he's impressed. Yes, you've answered rightly. He doesn't assure him of his salvation. He, he doesn't tell the man that, you know what? You have found the keys to the kingdom. No assurance. He says, you're close. You're close, but you're not there yet. I'm sure he was baffled. Perhaps some of you are baffled. Well, why, 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 would he, why would he say that? Because Jesus' statement to this man proclaims the truth that Your religion doesn't get you access to the kingdom. Christ's religion does. Christ's religion does. Here is the scribe thrilled that he knows the greatest commandment, right? He's answered the way Jesus, this rabbi, would have answered the question who has marveled everyone else. He even goes as far as to say that, um, that, 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 that to love God is better than whole burnt offerings and sacrifices, referring to 1 Samuel 15 with Samuel and Saul. He was a religious man. The scribes were religious. They knew the law better than anyone else. Well-skilled. Answered all the questions correctly. Knew how to lead a Bible study. In Sunday school class, he was on the front row answering all the questions rightly. Skilled, well-skilled in systematic theology. But no confirmation of entrance. Now that is controversial. You say he knew the law? He knew the correct answer? Certainly he should have made it in out of anyone. He should have made it in. Here's the scary truth, brothers and sisters. There will be people in hell who went to church every Sunday, who entered the waters of baptism, who recited the Apostles' Creed faithfully, could do it from memory backwards and forwards and still not gain entrance into the kingdom. Because they had all their religion right, but it was empty religion. You see, it's easy to come up with right answers. It's easy to come up with right answers. The scribe knew what the greatest commandment was, but the greatest commandment knew no part of him. It knew no part of him. He was puffed up in his knowledge of the law, thinking that was what was necessary to love God. Brothers and sisters, Jesus doesn't hate religion. 
Jesus doesn't hate religion. He hates self-righteous, man-made religion. Reciting the Shema multiple times a day and having knowledge of the greatest commandment did not mean that he loved God. Oh, that should be a, a scary truth for us this morning. It should remind us that Having knowledge of the Bible is not what gets us in. Not having, not having, having good religion is not what gets us in. Coming to church on Sunday, singing songs, praying, reciting the Apostles' Creed does not mean that you love God. Question is, are you pursuing loving God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength, all of your mind, all the while knowing that you are not trusting in your religion, but you are trusting in Christ who fulfilled all the religion you need to get you into heaven. That's the question. Are you trusting Christ? See, brothers and sisters, I, I, when we ask, we ask before, well, who can do all this? And I, and I joked and said it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Ah, brothers and sisters, it really does matter. It does matter. But you see, there is only one. There is only one who could do it. Who could love God with all of their heart, all of their strength, all of their soul, all of their mind. Only Jesus loved God perfectly. Every waking minute, sleeping second hour of every single day, 24 7, 365, only Christ did it. That is why God could require it of us. That is why He could demand it of us. Because this was part of His sovereign plan. From the very beginning. Because he was jealous for his glory. Jealous for his fame. Jealous that we would worship and honor him. That he was going to punish his son for our sins. And give us his son's perfect religion. Oh, brothers and sisters, that is love That is amazing grace. That is love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, and my all. Oh, this is wonderful love. This is wonderful mercy. Christ fulfilled all of the law. This command that demands everything. We strive, we work, but we rest in Christ because he has fulfilled the law. Let us pray together.
Father, your commands are heavy. Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for in that last second breaking this command. Father, we don't love you as we should. Father, you demand all of us, all of our lives, every, every ounce, every fiber of our being, you demand it of us and our right to do so, Lord. So we ask that you would forgive us for breaking that law every second of every day, Lord. Forgive us, Father. We thank you for Christ. Oh, that he has fulfilled your demands. He's fulfilled your laws perfectly. And that you have crushed him with our sin and given us his perfect righteousness. Thank you, Father, for loving us so. We pray now that as we would contemplate on those wonderful truths, Lord, that we would seek to live our lives loving you with all of our hearts, all of our souls, all of our minds, and all of our strengths for your glory and your glory alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.